Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, friends, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. Today was a brilliant episode. We chatted to Jack March, who is a specialist rheumatology physio. He's been on the podcast before when we spoke about axial spondyloarthropathy. That's a mouthful. Today's episode, we focused on arthritis, specifically osteoarthritis, and what it is, how it affects people, how it causes pain, does it happen to everyone. Jack really helped us to bust a lot of myths and helped to really get a good understanding about what arthritis actually is and if you're suffering, what you can do to help yourself and when it is that you actually need to get some help from other people. So tune in. It's a really good one. This is a fantastic episode if you are struggling or also for any clinicians who are listening who may be treating people with arthritis, which I'm guessing is most people. So enjoy it. Have a listen. And if you like what you hear, please press the subscribe button, have a listen to a few other episodes. And if you really like what you're listening to, give us a good rating on iTunes. It really helps us out and helps spread our message about helping people with back pain to more and more people. So thank you. Have a great day and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Today, we're joined again by Jack March, you know, our first guest to have a repeat invite. So uh, welcome to the podcast today, Jack. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Can't stay away. I'm always recording, so it's easy to <laughs> just get you to ask me some questions rather than try and make them up myself. Oh, oh, always good. So um, today, we would like to have a chat around arthritis. Um, arthritis is a, a term that gets thrown around a lot, um, whether that's in by your GP, whether it's by family members, and it comes with a lot of package, um, the, the term arthritis. A lot of people can be quite f- scared of the term arthritis, um, and it can be very scary. If someone says to you, oh, you know, it's probably just a bit of arthritis, what might they're trying to get across is that it's perfectly normal, but it actually might be something a bit more serious. So obviously, you know, you being a, a, rheumato- uh, you know, a rheumatology specialist physio, um, this is something which you deal with all day, every day, and the various types of arthritis there are. Now, I know that it is a huge topic, and I don't know if you know off the top of your head how many different types of arthritis there are. Um, but there are, you know, it, it's not just one. <laughs> There's quite a few. Um, so I thought we'd kind of, you know, get you to break, break, break the, the more common ones down and kind of go from there. Mm. So if I kind of put it to you to start with, um, you know, what is the most common type of arthritis? Or when people generally say, I've got arthritis, what, are they, what is it they're referring to? Yeah. So to answer your question with uh, about how many types of arthritis are there, I was just thinking, and actually, there aren't that many, but it gets very complicated because there's lots of different names. So there's a lot of different things surrounding the arthritis itself that would then lend itself to a different name. So probably, uh, I probably get lynched for this, but it's probably about five types. <laughs> I'd say <laughs> five ty- five types of arthritis, but then there are hundreds of different conditions that could cause the arthritis. Uh, and we'll talk about what arthritis is, I suppose, in a bit. Uh, but the most common would be osteoarthritis. Um, so when, so I, I think it, the, the easiest thing to do is if you take the word arthritis, um, then it's made up of two words. And I forget whether which ones, I think arth is Greek for, uh, or ancient Greek for joint. And then itis, I think is Latin for inflammation. So it literally means joint inflammation. And the irony is, is that over the years, um, people thought that arthritis was like a wearing away of your joints. So a bit like if you were to drive your car a lot 
um, your tires wear down. So they thought it was a bit like that. Um, and then more recently, so the last five to 10 years, we've realized that actually the previous term of arthritis, joint inflammation was actually spot on. Um, and we should have probably just listened to that. <laughs> uh, and it's not that the things wear away. So um, osteoarthritis would be the most common one. And what it basically, to make to the simplest um, explanation of osteoarthritis is that it's basically the the joint aging over time so if you were to not everybody's like this and it's a good analogy for um for osteoarthritis actually so if you took um if you've got 120 year olds in a room and then you've got 180 year olds in a room in so same room you'd pretty much be able to tell who was 20 and who was 80 by the look of their skin um, so the skin deteriorates over time or it looks different over time. So you get crevices, you, it changes color and, uh, wrinkles and it's not quite so stretchy. So it, um, so it, it, it sort of sinks off your face and all these kind of different bits of bobs. And I think everybody would be happy that that's a thing that happens and it happens in various different degrees to different people. So when you look at osteoarthritis itself, that's the same thing that happens in the joints. Um, and the, the joints, for want of a better term, deteriorate over time. So they don't look as perfect as they did before. Um, so if you were to MRI them or X-ray them, um, then they, the, the cartilage is thinner, the cartilage quality isn't so good. Um, and that's what you can see on X-ray. Um, now, what is interesting, much like the analogy with the skin, some of those older people we talked about with the changes in the skin, they'd be bothered by the appearance. So they wouldn't like the fact that they've got wrinkles. Um, they'd be irritated by it. Um, they might wear makeup or try these creams and things that say rejuvenation, et cetera, whether they work or not. Um, and the same sort of thing happens with osteoarthritis. So some people's joints look absolutely awful. Um, they, if you were to x-ray them and you didn't ask them any questions, you would think that that joint is wrecked, ruined, uh, we hear the term bone on bone, which is a terrible term anyway. Um, but basically you do the x-ray, you can see on the x-ray that there's basically no cartilage left. Um, that, so the joints are very, very close together. Um, there's o o other signs you can see as well. Um, but actually what we know is that that doesn't really have a relevance on how much pain someone gets from their joint. Um, so the... So some people would have a very small amount of change to their joint, but have lots and lots and lots of pain. And other people would have a very big change to their joint and have almost no pain at all, if any. Um, and classically, you'll see, um, if you spend any time in an orthopedics department, you x-ray both knees um, is a classic one uh, to do. And um, someone will come in with right knee pain, and actually it's the left one that looks terrible and the right one looks fine, but the right one's the painful one. So what we what we then have to sort of think about is why why does this happen why is that so complicated you would logic would dictate that the joint that looks more degraded would be the worst one um, but actually it's tons more complicated than that so um that's what people would tend to associate as the as arthritis in the normal sense of the word would be this degradation of the joint but what we've moved towards now in clinics is that we, what we call it clinical diagnosis rather than a radiological one. So you would see things on, on X-ray um, that we would say, so like I said, you, you would see the cartilage is thinned and sort of five, 10 years ago, you would say that's osteoarthritis. Whereas actually now you would say that's the cartilage is thinned, but it's the painful, the stiffness symptoms of the joint 
that's what osteoarthritis is. So it's it's what the patient reports rather than what the x-ray shows. So you use the x-ray for various different things, making sure it's not something else um, and seeing, you know, what the joint looks like. Um, an orthopedic surgeon's, you know, if they're going to go and do something in that joint, going in blind without ever having seen it is a bit of a, is a bit of a, um, a bit of winging it. So they'll, they often will do it for that reason rather than for diagnostic purposes. So it's, it's really a case of if you, um, if you had someone who came or if I had someone who came to clinic and, um, and, and they said, you know, I'm 65 years old, uh, my right knee hurts. Um, it's nothing particularly triggered the pain, but it's sort of got worse over the last six months. Maybe it swells a little bit. Maybe it doesn't. It's a bit stiff in the morning. If I sit down for too long, it's a bit stiff. But generally, if I walk too much, it hurts. You're 99% chance going to say that's probably osteoarthritis of the knee that's causing the pain. But you wouldn't then go, well, we need to get an x-ray of that to, uh, to diagnose the osteoarthritis. You might get an x-ray, but you don't need to. Um, so that's, that's what we sort of do in clinic. And, and in the absence of something obvious else that's causing the pain, that's the most likely thing. So what I always say to patients is that everybody will get osteoarthritis at some point or their joints will all deteriorate at some point. Um, it's just at what point in your life stage does that actually happen? So some people are unfortunate enough that it happens in the thirties. Other people are fortunate enough that it doesn't happen until they're 107. Um, and obviously some people will pass away before they ever develop any joint symptoms. But if you were to live indefinitely, you would definitely get that. Um, so if everybody gets it, it's normal. What's not normal is, well, why do some people get pain and some people don't? Um, and that's a really complicated question to start mm. to answer. Um, and there, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's a one-on-one -on -one, um, question that you could take, and they have done, you could take twins and, um, they, and show that they have the same joint deterioration um, let's take knees because they're easy um same joint deterioration but actually one gets pain and one doesn't and so you'd say well they've hardly had any difference in upbringing all these different so what what is it about that and actually when you when you really think about what's happening within the body as to why people will get the osteoarthritis symptoms then you start to understand a little bit more as to why some people get pain and some people don't and it's not and the problem is that's still not a definitive answer. So when I, when you ask me the next question, which I can foresee coming, um, which it will be, you know, well, why do some people get it and some people don't? The problem is I will list out a few things as to what will make it more likely that people would get pain from the, that osteoarthritis, but not everybody will. So again, it's a bit like, um, you know, we, we smoking is a good example because we know the correlation between smoking and uh, Ill, Ill health is so strong, but yet you'll still have some people who have smoked 25 cigarettes a day for 50 years, but never get a problem. So it's, there's always the outlier. There's always outliers. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I say to every, almost every patient I ever meet, it's everybody's an individual. You are your own person. There has never been someone like you there never will be someone like you. So it, what we're trying to do, especially with osteoarthritis, but with other types of arthritis as well, is we're trying to force someone's symptoms into a box, into a diagnostic box, when actually it's 
just them as a human being is is individual so uh, you know i've often joked with people before that you know one day in the in a hundred years time we'll get to diagnosing me with jack disease because it's so individual that i'll be the only person that ever has those types of symptoms in that yeah. number with that time frame with that onset um and no one ever will again but we we aren't at that point so we have to box people in to know how to treat them and research them as well because it, it, it's a lot to do with research with how do we do these different things and um, so I, I know so, i've just gone off on one for 10 minutes no that was that was the best explanation of osteoarthritis <laughs> i think i've ever heard so that was brilliant so for anyone listening that is you know just just repeat that when i ask you what's wrong with your knee you know that's perfect so the so i mean i know i said that that was the outliers then who who, who are fine but if this happens to the vast majority and we know this happens to you know give or take everyone at some point and in every joint you know you'll see these age-related change normal or whatever but these, these age-related change it sounds like then almost it's the outliers who will then actually get pain because if this is happening to everybody's hips knees ankles spines you know not or not all 95 year olds are walking around with bilateral hip knee ankle back neck shoulder pain mm. um they might have some stiffness and some pain and, and you know maybe a bit of aching now again but that you would they wouldn't classify as they all need you know, bilateral joint replacements, you know, throughout their whole body or spinal fusion. So it, it, you can have severely, you know, degraded joints and be completely normal. Um, and I think that's the biggest takeaway is that, you know, just be, what, you know, just what's shown on the scan does not mean that you need a joint replacement or you, you need a hip replacement. And this isn't a reason why we don't, you know, like x-raying people after three days of lower back pain. Um, a, a case that springs to mind was a patient who I saw once, um, uh, in in the NHS, who had came to see came to see me, it had an NHS contract at the time, and she said, "Oh, I had this back pain. My GP's just sent me for an MRI. Um, sent sent me for an X-ray, um, and it turns out I've got arthritis." And I said, "Oh, uh, how did the back pain start?" And she said, "Oh, I, I stepped off a curb and my jarred my back, and it, it gave me arthritis." And she didn't have any back pain prior to that problem. She was in her mid sixties. She had an X-ray. It turned out she had some, as you described, that you know, a normal spine for her age. Um, but the GP said, oh, there's some arthritis. And she was under the impression that this a sudden onset of back pain after you know, stepping off a curb was, was arthritis. And that, you know, that brought it on. Um, but it's that prime treating the person, not the scan, isn't it? Uh. Yeah. And we have this problem now in medicine where, um, and I'm going to divorce this from patients for a bit because it affects them, but they can't do anything about it. So the problem we've got now is we know that, let's say, let's say we x-rayed me and you, right? And we know that between the two of us, the odds are that we're going to find something on one of our two scans. Like it would be weird if me and you had perfect looking scans of our spines or knees or hips, right? Um, so what, we, what previously we would have done is go, yes, Jack, you've got some arthritis in your low back. But actually what we're looking at are changes to the joint, the cartilage, the ligaments, which are normal for me, I don't get back pain, but we used to associate those changes with arthritis pain because people back pain is incredibly common. Those changes in the low back are incredibly common. Um, and you can easily attribute those two things together to say that's what arthritis is. It's a correlation as opposed to the causation, it, isn't it? Is exactly. It's chick or chicken or egg, you know, chicken and egg, there yeah. before, yeah. Exactly. So the problem then is you go, well, okay, let's not call it arthritis to me. Let's, so we do my x-ray and we say, your back is, has got some degeneration in it. 
The problem we have in medicine is we also know that if we tell people that, they have a negative connotation to those words that their back is degenerated. And actually, you get worse outcomes. Uh, so you said we don't x-ray people after three days of back pain. We know that if we do do that, their outcomes are actually worse, regardless of what else we do to them. Um, whether we send them for treatment or not, we know that their outcomes are worse. And that's because we find these incidental findings that people don't know what they necessarily mean and then they are they are to a degree worried if it, it go going back to my car analogy if i went to the if i went to the um um if i went to the garage and I, and and they said oh yeah your your front wheels are degraded well i'm not going to be very happy about that <laughs> <laughs> no, you so wouldn't. but then but then there's a third point to this where if i was to say you know um you've got to, to, to me, oh, you've got a little, you've got some stenosis or you've got some um, sub uh, cortical edema, like that's jargon that patients are, are never going to understand. So we're, so from a medical point of view, and I, I run around this when I'm talking to people who I have sent for scans, is how on earth do I now explain a scan to someone um, when without using jargon, they've, they've got no hope of understanding or without, without using... using scary terms without like using scary terms. wear and tear or crumbling spine and exactly so so i think we have to be better in how we do that and the way that we need to we do that is that and the way i always phrase this to people when i send them for a scan for whatever reason is is we say i am looking for this thing this specific thing that i'm sending you for referral for so in knees that's quite often you know like set make it simple an acl rupture a ligament rupture um or i might be looking for a specific cartilage tear at which point i say to them look we're looking for that thing there are a few things that might come back that we might be concerned about but if but otherwise but they're pretty rare so we don't need to worry about them anything else that comes back on that scan we will assume is normal and we're not going to worry about it so it, we need to front end that conversation. It's not, I'm going to send you for a scan to see what's there, report everything that's there because most of it's normal and scare the bejesus out of everybody. So at which point you go, right, fine. That leads us on to this, this really interesting question, which is, okay, so if, if, we, if we scan all these people and some of them show these degenerative changes, some don't, and some of those with the degenerative changes have pain and others don't what is the separating factor between the ones that get pain and the ones that don't because most of the people that are worried about this they've got pain really um and that's why they come and see us because they don't want the pain to be there because it's not very nice um and that's where it gets really complicated so within this group you you have these people that have pain and these people that don't but their backs back scans look the same so you you have to look further um, into, into what's been going on. And what we know now is that, NF, as we said, arthritis is inflammation, joint inflammation. So um, we, what we know now is anything that increases your resting level of inflammation makes you more likely to then get symptoms. So the classic example of this is, is um, osteoarthritis of the thumb. Well, probably not on video, are we? I've just put my thumb up. I'm <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> used to being on video. So osteoarthritis of the thumb is probably the third most common location to get symptomatic osteoarthritis. So knees and hips first and then, then the thumb. But the thumb's not a weight-bearing joint, so it immediately removes the wear and tear aspect. Um, 
of, of this issue because the, the force that goes through the thumb is magnitudes of, of less than through the knee and the hip. So then you go, okay, so why are people getting it there? And now actually, if you look at people, it, it, it tends to be people who smoke, tends to be people who are um, overweight, particularly anybody with abdominal fat. So the more abdominal fat you have, the more risk you have of having thumb OA. And you go, well, why on earth does having abdominal fat re- increase your risk of thumb OA? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. No. But what we know is that the, the, the fat cells, they release what we call um, their inflammatory upregulators, they release into the system. So they're like little signalers that tell the inflammatory system to be more busy, be more active. Um, and especially abdominal fat does that to a greater degree than other types. So what you have is this stimulus into the system to increase your inflammatory system. It's probably barely measurable. Um, it, it, it's a small amount, but over a very long period of time, um, that's enough to increase it. So this brings me on to what actually is arthritis. So um, if you consider your joint as having like a little balloon around it, um, which feeds the joint, uh, lubricates the joint, so it allows fluid into the joint, um, then that little balloon is stimulated um, by the inflammatory system to create more joint fluid or feed it more. And things that that's will what, increase... Just to clarify, that, that's what you're referring to as what people call a joint capsule. You know, joint and, and capsule. The capsule surrounding the joint, yeah. So people yeah. may have heard, come across that term, yeah. Exactly. So, and what that does is it reacts to different things that are happening in your body. So if you have a knee injury, then you want that knee injury to be healed. You don't want, you can't have it bleeding forever. Um, it is, you know, just like you don't want skin bleeding forever. So the, the joint capsule, um, or this balloon then becomes inflamed to allow the healing proteins and, and cells into the joint, which does the repair work. The problem is that's that, that, increase in inflammation we talked about from things like smoking um things like um the obesity the the abdominal fat other things that can do it are like stress um lack of sleep diet um loads of stuff genetics um is a really big one but you always can't change your genetics and and uh that's why some people get it younger that rather than later is probably a big genetic component um but also injuries and surgery will really stimulate that so um this is why then you end up with these with these thumb issues so we also know there's some really interesting things around um having surgery elsewhere and ending up with osteoarthritis and and stuff like that so it's anything that increases your resting level of inflammation um to a slightly higher level will then accelerate the changes to your joint so those age-related changes to your joint and again it's the same as going back to this skin issue if you had these people who had um who are a bit older and they you looked at their skin the people who had been out in the sun a lot in the wind a lot um in the rain a lot would have more their skin would be more affected than people who just sat indoors and never been out in the sunshine um and that's the equivalent it's not use per se but it's exposure to this inflammation so those there are there is a small subcategory of people who can cause in um, osteoarthritis by overuse, but we're talking elite athletes who run marathons for a living. Um, so it's, it, you know, it, most of us, 99% of us, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's those kind of things that mean people get symptomatic osteoarthritis rather than only the 
the visual changes you would get on an x-ray the, the radiographic arthritis as he said which which will happen to everyone to, to yes. some extent at, at some point exactly that's amazing i think that that's kind of busted a lot of myths because you know as we said the term arthritis gets interchanged for lots of different things and this is i don't know in terms of percentages how much more common osteoarthritis is than the rest of them but it, it's, it's it's up there in terms of it's a lot more common than than, than the other types of arthritis which you mentioned earlier um, and we, we might be able to touch on those a bit later, but that's, again, might be another topic for an, for another day. But when people talk about, uh, you know, arthritis and they immediately would assume that they're now going to have back pain for life um, because they've got arthritis and their mother had arthritis. And we forget about those hereditary links and that medicine has come a long way or you know, if we use medicine as a general term, it's come a long way in the last 20, 30, 40 years. So people that are being diagnosed with, with you know, air quotes, arthritis, you know, 40 years ago, were being told they had a crumbling spine and they're probably going to have back pain for life. So these myths get perpetuated down these generations, down these cycles. So mm. if someone who is now in their 40s um, and their mother's had back pain for as long as she, they can remember, um, and she's now been told that you know, she's got some arthritis on a scan, then you can see how then this fear will start to st- start to grow. And it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and the fear she has around back pain um, you know, then she then stops moving because she doesn't want to damage it further. And then that then perpetuates a cycle even more. So it's very easy to fall into that trap. And I think as us as clinicians have to be very good at explaining it. And obviously that mm. expla- explanation you've just given is is brilliant. So for clinicians listening, you know, that's something to really take away. And for people who are listening who have potentially been given a diagnosis of arthritis or been used one of those, you know, outdated terms, then it's something which they can harness and go, actually, maybe this is, is not a life... It's not a life sentence, I guess. Um, so that touches on on the hereditary issue. Um, is there any hereditary issue with osteoarthritis in terms of, you know, if your mother, um, you know, or your father potentially uh, has a, you know, a history of, you know, severe, you know, degeneration on, you know, radiology, are you more likely to have that or more likely to have back pain because of that? Yeah, there, it would be. So it's very difficult to say how much of a risk you would have. So um the problem the problem that we have is osteoarthritis is you're not developing a disease you're altering the speed of the normal aging process if that makes sense so some people would so you can alter it to be faster by smoking being overweight drinking too much having a bad diet not exercising you can alter it to be slower by doing the opposite of those things so what your genetic link would be would be to be on the faster side or the slower side but also we have to consider that you would be your genetic component would would be more likely to have an effect on the symptoms that you feel as well so it's not enough to say my dad had a very degenerated hip joint there then you also need to combine your other family members into did they have other painful syndromes or other painful things that happened to them so let's say for example i'm struggling with knee osteoarthritis and it's causing me a lot of pain the fact that my father had a lot of back pain that might be something that i look at to say well well genetically i'm a bit predisposed to getting pain just as in general. So we know that people have various um, uh, tolerant, tolerance is the wrong word, various thresholds, that's the word I'm looking for, various thresholds before they get a painful uh, response. So um, we do, you do this thing called a pressure 
pain threshold test uh, where they basically push on you until it hurts and they can measure how much yeah it's it's awful um it's um and it it basically measures how much force you can take before you get pain and it varies wildly uh between people so um it's you get again you get this complicated mix where i might have more degeneration but my my threshold before i get pain with the inflammatory process is lower so there's that component you also have to then go back into your own history so people who have had painful events are more likely to get pain in the future due to your central nervous system essentially learning um which is is sort of a bit of an unhelpful um side effect really but also things like surgery um and mental health like depression and anxiety highly correlate with people being more likely to become symptomatic so the genetic so and obviously that can be passed that has a sort of genetic component to it as well so you have to really take someone on their individuality and in the end it doesn't really matter um it it doesn't really you, you if you have pain the treatment is the same if you don't have pain the the way to try and reduce your risk of getting pain is the same um so in the which end, which is very similar to the treatment, yeah. exactly, which is very yeah. similar to the treatment. So in the end, actually, it sounds terrible, but you can ignore the individual circumstances to a degree, as long as we educate people. So as long as you, as long as the person that we're talking to, we've educated them as to why they're getting these things, like we've just talked about. Um, then actually, in the end, it doesn't matter whether they've had a ton of knee surgery, whether they played football and had a load of knee injuries, whether they're very overweight, whether they're family had osteoarthritis it doesn't actually matter um because what we know is basically we can we treat people roughly the same um and they all come out in the end in about a year to two years with about the same amount of progress which is a really funny situation for us to be in in medicine where we're going yeah well we've individualized this down like uh but actually the treatments all turn out to be the same um which doesn't often happen so it yeah it's a funny situation really yeah. um, so i would say to people you know if people have got if people have got osteoarthritis and they're struggling with it and they go well why that you can look into your history and your family history and work out why but it, and, and sometimes that's helpful sometimes it's not very much but in the end it doesn't really matter um you're symptomatic yeah. now and we need to do something about it so i guess then that you know segues us ni- nicely onto the next pit which is if you have that a diagnosis of arthritis and in into that diagnosis i'll put things like crumbling spine or degenerative disc disease or crumbling spine and you know if we if we think about back pain the principles of, of treatment are, are similar across all joints um whether that's back knees hips or thumbs you know the, the the core principles are very similar um so what are the takeaway messages that someone can be doing and should be doing if they have you know been given this however it was delivered to them this diagnosis that you know They've got, you know, unfortunately, some people may have used those terms, crumbling spine, but uh, what what should they be doing? What should their healthcare professional be doing or showing them how to do to help decrease the pain? Because people will be listening and saying, well, I've, I've got this joint now. I can't undo that. Will mm. I always have pain? So what can they be doing to help reduce it and help manage the pain? Yeah. And will so it ever go away? Yeah. yeah so it can't, there, there has been... It, has been shown that people have quite good resolution. So you you sort of have to split it into different categories. So you'd have my and these are a bit arbitrary, unfortunately. But so you'd have mild, moderate, and severe. And we're talking symptomatic rather than 
we're ignoring radiological factors here because we know that, as we talked about, they don't correlate. So the mild, moderate and severe pain. Um, so it would, we see that people with mild problems, um, and I sort of characterize them as it hurts, but it doesn't stop them from doing anything. Um, and doesn't affect your sleep. Um, so we see that they, they resolve, so they go down to naught symptoms reasonably easily. Then you move on to the moderates. Um, some of them will resolve. Um, most of them will go down to mild, uh, and some just don't change because there's always those. Um, and then severe, some of them will go down to mild, but not many. Most will go down to moderate, and some will stay as severe. And the severe ones that don't resolve are the ones that go on for joint replacements um so moderate i would characterize as um is starting to stop people from doing their activities so let's say you can't get around the golf course sufficiently you can't walk your dog as far as you would want to um those sorts of things so it's affecting hobbies and and or work and then severe would be really restricting walking um and pain that's stopping people from sleeping um so those, so we do still get good resolution and good reduction in symptoms, um, but it does characterise on what you're, where you're likely to get to, depending on how severe the symptoms are now, um, but also how long the symptoms have been there. The the things that we can do short term, there's not a ton, um, but anything that symptomatically helps. So um, things like knee supports for knees, obviously, um, so like straps. Uh, velc um, neoprene supports anything like that that brings the pain down in the short term can be done um, heat and ice can help symptomatically in the short term and obviously painkillers paracetamol um, and anti-inflammatories can help in the short term but they're not really a good good long-term fix and then you've got the moderate and sort of medium and long term and they basically look at addressing all of those things that we talked about so there's no two ways about it. If you uh, if your BMI sits over 25 um, and you think that some of that is abdominal fat, then reducing your BMI is very helpful. Um, one, it decreases the load through the joints, which once you are symptomatic does help. But two, it reduces the inflammation down. So it comes, it comes down quite nicely. Um, and then it's like diet will help with that. Um, and exercise will help with that. We know that um, exercise is anti-inflammatory in its own right. Um, so you will get a short reduction in, uh, in inflammation in the short term, but over the long term, uh, that really helps as well. So it helps with reducing inflammation, but it also brings that tolerance of the joint up, like we talked about. Um, and the way that I describe that is oh, I don't wear smart shoes very often. So if I go to a wedding, my feet hurt like hell the next day. Um, they're not damaged. They just don't tolerate being in those shoes for a long time. Um, so, but if I was to wear those shoes around for two or three weeks beforehand, then they wouldn't feel that bad afterwards. So you're just building your tolerance up to things. Um, so th th there's that as well. Um, and then not smoking, just smoking's terrible. Don't do it. Um, the <laughs> bringing that down is ideal, preferably stopping, um, alcohol, you know, drinking alcohol within a reasonable limit. And unfortunately a reasonable limit is two or three units a week which some people will think is an appalling level of alcohol to have been cut down <laughs> to. Um, but we know that that, has, that that will settle as abdominal fat, but also it's not very good for your, um, for your inflammatory system as well. Um, and then things which are a bit more difficult to talk about, which is we talked about depression and anxiety. Um, and a lot of time, 
people don't recognize that they are depressed or anxious um but also they it's it's difficult when you're in that stage to notice that you need help to get out of that or that will improve things because of the nature of them um but like i said they're they are they basically come hand in hand with more pain. So I've seen a number of people in the past where actually the, the treatment of choice is going to see um, clinical psychology or starting an antidepressant or starting an, um, something that helps with anxiety or um, you know help to manage the anxiety <laughs> from a psychological therapy's point of view rather than anything physical. Um, and it's, you know, we can employ all of these techniques to help people. Um, but it's sort of, you know, time is finite, resources are finite, what's going to have the biggest effect um, on the individual. And that's where actually going into the individual nature can help. If someone isn't depressed or anxious, then you are looking at diet, exercise, etc., to help painkillers. Um, and some and people, gone. Sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, and, and, as, and as with everyone else, that's very individual. So it depends yeah. on that, that the person in front of you. There, there'll be people who will be doing lots of exercise, and it's their hip that's stopping them, or their back that's stopping them playing playing tennis, yeah. for example. Um, and then you, you don't need to have as much conversation around exercise um, because, as, as far as that, they're trim, and, you, and then you can approach other uh, other avenues, whether it's you know pain augmentation or you know ch- exactly. changing the pain through through medication or psychosocial interventions and then the people who aren't doing that and aren't doing that regular exercises then it changes the conversation depending on who's in front exactly. of you yeah exactly and there will be people listening to this um who are going jack you're an idiot i'm not overweight i don't smoke i don't drink i eat healthy i exercise all the time i'm not depressed i'm not anxious and i've still got a painful hip or a painful knee and then you go well okay that's fine what we need to do is that graded exposure point that I talked about, like me with my wedding shoes. So you, we need to find a way of building the tolerance in the joint up. Um, and sometimes that means reducing one activity and building a different one until you, um, for want of a better, settle the joint down, then build it back up again. Other times you exercise around the joint. So actually, you um what you could what i've done with people before let let's take your analysis with a hip and tennis is you continue playing the same amount of tennis you actually do more exercise but it's not lower limb based so like i said any exercise is anti-inflammatory so what i've got people doing is upper limb exercises um so you could do cardiovascular exercises or you could do swimming in the pool with only your arms uh where you leave your legs alone and actually that produces enough of anti-inflammatory effect to allow the joint to to gain more the hip joint to gain more tolerance so it does take some working out um to do but it is still doable the point with the other things that i'm mentioning really is you need to optimize your body system um so like let's take um let's take a really extreme example and let's say we've got a guy in the tennis guy with his hip pain and you know he go comes into physiotherapy and he uh, his bmi is 35 you've got loads of abdominal uh, fat. He smokes all the time, drinks all the time. His diet's terrible. Fine, he exercises, but his body system is rubbish. Like it, you've got so much inflammation running around. Doesn't matter if we do like hip strengthening exercises or hip mobility exercises. It's not going to make an, a, an effect because the biggest change is going to come through changing the body system itself. Because, um, like we said, it's not the arthritis um, in inverted commas is not really related to that one joint it's the body system and actually that just the symptoms are coming out in that joint if that makes sense as a distinction so 
um, sometimes it's an easy conversation. Other times it's not so much. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And then, uh, as you said, if you use that example, who they've got that the bad system. You know, their, their foundations, I guess, of their house are are, are a problem for for want of a better word. Whether that's mm. lack of exercise or diet or whatever it might be. And then, yeah, it's coming out in that one joint. And likely, if you X-rayed every single joint in their body, they'd probably have the similar levels of you know radiographic change on X-ray. So there would be similar levels of you know wear and tear in terms of if you if you call it that on the x-ray but it only happens to be that one be that happens to be the problem yeah potentially wildly variable so that you could x-ray them and that one joint that symptomatic joint might actually be the best looking one yeah um, i mean yeah we've all had patients i'm sure you have as well who you know the surgeon happens to have x-rayed both knees as you kind of i know you mentioned similar before i, I can think of one who i saw fairly recently who went in to have one knee done and the surgeon x-rayed happened to x-ray the other leg, leg and said oh actually this one's worse we'll do this one at the same time and she ended up with two knee replacements with only having, you know, with a bit of stiffness in one and the other one being Ugh. painful. Um, yeah. He said, oh, we're, going to, we're going to do it in five years anyway, so you might as well do it now. Um, I don't like so, that approach. I don't no, like that approach at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I know people who have had the good looking knee replaced and left the rubbish one because it's not symptomatic. And if it's not symptomatic, this is my, this is one of my beefs really um, with, with any surgical intervention is that, I think we don't tell people enough that there are risks associated with surgery. And don't get me wrong, knee replacement and hip replacement are probably the most effective surgery that we do for a pretty much yeah. any musculoskeletal problem. They are amazing. But for a significant number of people, they are the same or worse when they come back out after that, after six or eight months after that joint replacement. And if you... Let's take the lady you just spoke spoke about. If you replace her decent knee and all it's causing is some stiffness, that risk versus reward is ter- is it, it's shifting significantly. So I've said to people before, like you know, it doesn't matter that that look, knee looks garbage; it doesn't cause you a problem. Now it might cause you a problem in six months. Fine, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But it doesn't now. Ignore it. it doesn't matter. Um, just like you know, uh, let's think of another example. I can't think of one, but um, you know you just it it doesn't matter if it's not causing symptoms don't, if it's not broke don't fix it um and i think it's much like the skin i suppose the skin isn't good it doesn't your your wrinkly skin doesn't become less waterproof it doesn't become you know less it's functional. not cause less functional it's not causing a problem we don't have people having skin replacements because their their skin looks dodgy doesn't mm. doesn't happen uh, and the same thing should happen with joints so i i you know I don't like it when people go, there are reasons to have a joint replacement when your symptoms are not severe, but they are few and far between. Yeah. Um, and I always say to people, I've said this to so many people, it get, I become like a stuck record. I should have it recorded on my phone and just play it, save my voice. <laughs> um, if it's if basically, if, if it's not keeping people awake at night and it's not reducing the distance that they can walk to a degree that is very restrictive, the joint replacements are not a great idea. You could, you, you know, we we know that exercise programs, unfortunately, are a bit slow to be effective. They're sort of six to nine months to be really decent. But if you have a knee replacement, you're going to be recovering for six to nine months anyway. So all you're doing is introducing this problem, which you may not, not have needed to do. Now, yes, you may have needed, you may need a, a knee replacement in five years time. But that's five, like you alluded to, five years of more medical research, better technology, the surgeons getting better, need the replacements themselves being better, um, all this sort of stuff. Like I remember when I was a 
when I started as a physiotherapist, which is not that long ago, um, I qualified in 2008, they only, they were piloting um, people getting out of bed on the same day as their surgery for hip replacements. It's hip, some hip replacements are a day case now. Like yeah. that is not a long period of time. You can imagine in 10 years time again, where that's going to be at, yeah. you know, the well, 20 years ago, it was, you, you were in bed for two to three weeks after you had a yeah. joint replaced. Yeah. Especially is, the hip, you know, it's crazy how much we've gone. I know people don't need to rest. They're way better if they don't rest. Yeah. And it turns out that that's pretty much the case with every orthopedic surgery as well. Yeah. Um, shoulders. And also outside elbows, of surgery, the same thing outside of surgery. We know that outside pretty much surgery. every, every MSK, you know, some arthritic conditions as well. Um, you know, you're better with exercise and load and moving and that, yeah. that joint adapts to that tolerance and learns to, you know, take that load and adapts because of it and then become stronger and more durable. And it might not change the appearance, but it, it functions better um, with yeah. all the muscles around it being stronger and the joint being able to tolerate that, that load better. And I Definitely. think that's pretty much the takeaway message as well, isn't it really? It's exactly. You know, yeah. Exercise and, and load and joints adapt. Like yeah. Everything else and, does. That, and that adaptation, like you said, it doesn't change visually what you can see. Um, but what it does is, is, so let's say your cartilage is thinned. So it's, it's not as, as, as thick as it should be. Um, then you, when you exercise on that joint, you actually increase the density of the cartilage. So um, it, there are some physiological changes which improve in the joint. You just can't visualize them. So that the, the exercise has so many effects. You just, you could just have to do it really. So you obviously get, like we said, the anti-inflammatory component, you get the fitness component, the loss of weight component. You also get this improvement in the integrity of the joint. So if you exercise, you actually, you actually lessen the likelihood of needing the replacement in the future. And they used to do things like steroid injection. A lot of people still do steroid injections and they do have a place, but the problem is with the steroid injections, you get, you might get six months of relief from that, but you also get a deterioration in the cartilage. So you get six months of improvement, but you it's been shown you go on to then actually need a knee replacement earlier than you would have done having not had the steroid injection. So if you couple those things together, instead of having a steroid injection, you exercise, you'll get a longer benefit, less likely to need a knee replacement or, or need it later. Um, so it's what, what we basically are learning now, and I hope that people are getting this from what, what I keep rambling on about, is the short-term fixes are not short-term fixes. They're not that great. And also, they're worse for you in the long term. The longer term work, which unfortunately is difficult and boring and requires some um, sticking at, is way more effective. Um, and in similar time periods, like I said, if, you go in, if I go in for a knee replacement today, I'm not recovered for six months. So think about, think how much progress you make in six months on an exercise program where you would be. And actually we know that the, there may well be either, even equivalent or better than the knee replacement. Plus there's no risk. Um, and if six months it's worse then have a knee replacement at that point. Um, so, it, you know, I think we just need to be careful on who, who is requesting the knee replacements. So they yeah. understand what's going to happen. And also pe people are aware, as, aside from the replacement, that if you think of a muscle, people know that they go to the gym and they work a muscle, they make it do some work and it grows and gets stronger. You don't attribute that same thought process to tendons and, uh, and joints really when, on bones, when it's the same thing happens, you know, bones adapt to what you, what, what you put them under, whether that's your spinal joints, you know, for, you know, spinal joint, knee joint, hip joint, shoulder joint, 
And, you know, they get stronger. You know, we know that, you know, astronauts coming back from space, when they haven't put their any body weight through their, through their skeleton, their bones, you know, technically age a bit. However, six months of walking around and going back to the gym and resuming running and doing exercises, their bones have changed again. So these changes, which you see in, in, in your spine and, you know, what might be called degeneration, you can adapt and make them stronger and make them more functional again, like you can when you go to the gym and you train your biceps mm. and you get bigger biceps. The same principles happen. Um, exactly, the- yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, this is going off topic, but the with the astronauts, you can't just use load. You have to si- stimulate, sorry, simulate gravity. Uh, it doesn't work just doing exercise. Uh, which is yeah. um, anyway that is. Did you mean when? Would you mean when they're in space? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where these the, the weighted treadmills where they're being yes. pinned down to the treadmill. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, and it, the, which is where it comes more complicated. We thought you could just exercise and deal with it, but yeah. actually you can't. Um, oh, it's the, a whole thing. Yeah. The the only other thing that you've just re- you've just made me think of it um, now it triggered me is th- is supplements as well, which is a lot of what people talk about. That's a and good question. Yeah. Glucose and chondroitin, I guess, being the biggest yeah, one that no, people talk yeah. about a lot. So I used to work with a, with a consultant and he said the best thing for of those sort of supplements is to make your wee expensive. Um, <laughs> expensive so, wee, I've heard that before. <laughs> expensive wee, yeah. Bye-bye money. <laughs> yeah, the, so what chondroitin and glucosamine is really fascinating. So what they did was they went, these, these compounds are in cartilage. So if we eat those compounds, our cartilage will be better. Um, but actually what it turns out is that's not the case at all. If you, if you were to start taking glucosamine and chondritin before any of the degeneration happened, so circa tw- 20 years old, then it has a little bit of a um, sort of delaying effect, but not as much as not smoking, not as much as reducing your body weight, not as much as being healthy. But also um, it's going to cost a hell of a lot. Um, so the outcomes are no good you can probably hear my yeah. cat is having a meltdown is it your cat <laughs> it'll stop in a minute <laughs> he's just having a cry so, so you're, you're you're better off spending that money on a gym membership and oh, a personal a, trainer a yeah a thousand percent and, and the money yeah. you save on smoking you can spend on a holiday but it, yeah. You, <laughs> yeah the so and and thing and so you know if you're if you're starting to take these things because you're symptomatic they just don't work the same with turmeric all those other things that you you might hear um, some people or cod liver oil is the classic one as well. Some people will say, I take them. I feel better. Fine. If you can afford it. And there's you, no you downside. Know, there's, yeah. I mean, the tech that you can technically overdose, but you, you know, you probably run out of money before you do that. Yeah. So <laughs> the, um, the thing is it, it's, it's, it's something you can do. And if it helps brilliant, what we know is that on the on the whole and the majority of people it doesn't really help um and certainly doesn't actually affect your joints at all so if it's something where people like like you said if if i would hate to think that someone out there is going i can't afford a gym membership because i'm buying glucosamine and chondritin that's uh, just do not do that that's yeah. just that's insane um you know and comparatively paracetamol in tesco's is like 18p a packet or whatever you know again you're going to get way more effectiveness out of that um and taking that as you sort of need to um you know it's it's so much better so i I just wouldn't be bothering with those things 
um if if you want to take a supplement um ironically the best thing you can take is like protein take a protein shake uh you get all sorts of benefit from increasing your protein intake and it's far um, cheaper as well than, uh, and way cheaper especially with with the with all the bodybuilders and gym goers etc yeah. being really interested in having it it's cheap as chips so you know i just it's it's just not worth doing um, with the, with the supplements really, and I think it's just a that's waste, a good point actually. Waste of yeah, money. I mean, I hadn't, um, I hadn't even considered the supplement side of it actually. So I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a, it's a big question. Is you know what can I do for my degenerative joint? And that's often the first thing that people think about. They don't think about what they shouldn't be doing. Um, it's all you know what can I buy to make this feel better quite quickly? And it's and it's an easy solution, isn't it? You know, you spend you know twenty quid a week on some cod liver oil, which says you know reduce arthritis on the packet and you know, in, unless you're a biomedical scientist, of course you're going to buy it. You know, it's, it's not your, you're not a researcher. So it's up to us as healthcare professionals to be, you know, to be distilling this information and, you know, advising what we shouldn't, you know, ad, ad, giving correct advice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, it is tough because I don't want to sit here and go, oh, sorry, Rob, with your osteoarthritis, there's nothing we can really do in the short term, suffer it. Um, and like I said, there are a few things that you could make it easier with, but equally we can't sit here and go, I would find it very difficult to sit in front of a patient and say, you know, some people get benefit from turmeric here, go and buy it. When actually I'm well aware that for 98% of people, it's not going to do anything. Uh, it's just a complete waste of money. So we have to be judicious with how people spend their money. We also need to be judicious with how the especially in the UK with the NHS, how those NHS resources are used. And I think there's a big educational component. I hope people take it away from listening to this, that you shouldn't be, shouldn't be, I was going to say, shouldn't be bothering orthopedic surgeons. That's not the right thing, but you, you <laughs> shouldn't, you shouldn't worry about using resources like physiotherapists, chiropractors, osteopaths who are helping to provide exercise programs, helping you to help yourself use that till the cows come home. That's a very efficient use of taxpayer money, your money, anybody's money. When it becomes more of a problematic question is once you're being referred um, into C consultants, um, and orthopedics would be the classic one, you really have to think to yourself, and I say this to patients, if, if you're going to see orthopedic surgeons, they do surgery. So if you're going to see them, are you keen on having your knee replaced? If you have any doubt at all, don't go. Don't, there's no need to go and do it. If, you, if you're sat there going, oh, I don't really fancy any replacement, don't go see an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> go, and see, go and see physio, chiro. Yeah. Osteo. Because if, I know if, if, if that person turns up in my clinic or in your clinic and I go and I ask them some questions like we talked about and they just come back to me and they say, yeah, I don't sleep at night. Um, I can't walk anywhere. The pain is terrible. It's making me feel really awful. I'm going to go, do you know what? You're a good candidate for a knee replacement. Go and see the orthopedic surgeon. Like that's like, but for a lot of people, that's just not the case. And it, it sounds really terrible to say, but w even when you've got a lot of pain, the exercise programs are effective. Um, and you to just without putting yourself through six to nine months and you do have to stick at it. And it's really unfortunate. And, nowadays the the sort of the powers that be are cottoning on where you can't really go and see an orthopedic surgeon until you've done six to nine months of in inverted commas physiotherapy um the that you won't even get referred to orthopedics anyway 
you I, that would be my first port of call for people is you've just got to go and you I, I'm hoping the best outcome for this is we're catching people me and you right now listening to this podcast going yeah my symptoms are a bit they're a bit annoying at the moment but I'm still doing everything I want to now is the time to go to physio Cairo osteo yeah. whoever go now because you probably only need one or two sessions it's not gonna cost you even if you go privately it's not gonna cost you a lot relatively um in time or you go and have those yeah yeah uh the the advice advice is is, yeah change is long term yeah yeah exactly and you and you might just save loads of time and effort and symptoms before you get onto that moderate stage and severe stage and i think there people do wait and they don't either because they think they can put up with it or they think oh it's not worth bothering the GP about or whoever it is. But actually, I would far rather be seeing people in my clinic who have mild symptoms because I know that loads of them are going to get to no symptoms than having people in with severe symptoms that I know, well, even if they're really good at their exercise programs, you know, what's the best on average we're going to hope for? Getting them down to moderate, that's still still not ideal. Um, so I yeah. think, you know, people need to... people. People need to pull the trigger, as I call it, earlier um, and go and get some. And physio and Cairo and that's so easily accessible these days, yeah. it should be, um, that um, you know, it's certainly worth doing. And a lot of GP surgeries now, um, maybe people have heard about these first contact practitioners. So you can actually go and see a physio or a Cairo instead of the GP. Um, yeah. and, and you probably you, you potentially don't even need to get referred then because they'll give you the advice that you want in that session exactly bing bing bang bash you're done in a week like genius amazing so so i think you know people shouldn't be work this is where i find my message my personal messaging confusing people shouldn't be worried about going and accessing their healthcare providers but they need to consider which healthcare provider is that do they want to turn up in because if you go and bang on the on the on the door of the gp and say i want to go to orthopedics i want to go to orthopedics i want to go to orthopedics they will eventually send you to orthopedics but if you don't want to have a knee replacement or hip replacement or whatever it is you don't want to have surgery there's absolutely no point in going to orthopedics um outside of a very very tiny number who probably need um making sure that their diagnosis is correct but they are real outliers so it's, it's an interesting situation. And I think people, people, if I say to people, they need to take a little bit more responsibility for their own path through, uh, it's not that healthcare. I'm saying, yeah, through healthcare. It's not that I'm saying we're not doing this for you. You need to do it. It's think about what you're asking for. Think about what you want. And then voice that to the healthcare professional that you go and see that you access, because then they'll help you make the better decision. Um, to to go and see the right person at the right time i think brilliant that's a i think that's a really good message to end on and as much as i mean it's a very it was an incredible talk by you pretty much on 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 all things osteoarthritis we didn't even touch on <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis and, and psoriatic arthritis and lots of other things as well and i think that'll be a conversation for another day uh, yeah i'm sure i'll um, come back i'm sure i'm sure you will but i think that you know you've just summed up you know kind of what you've answered so many questions that so many people would have had um about you know their diagnosis or about their hereditary nature of their back pain or their knee pain whatever it might be as well so thank you for that um i tried to keep this to about half an hour and i think we're at 50 <laughs> 55 minutes so thank you for for your time i didn't want to <laughs> to give up many more than that um no so i think kind of to sum up on that is pretty much you know seek early advice from someone who knows what they're doing and can, and can encourage you for that active kind of management of your hip knee back pain whatever it might be um you know 
and then utilize those other resources if you know, if you know what you're getting yourself in for exercise a lot stop smoking stop drinking and and eat healthily you know eat eat a balanced diet and i think that's mm. you know i think that that advice would probably suffice for you know 99.9% of medical conditions you know out there as well but uh, you know there's lots of which not but if everybody took that board, on that advice on board i think you know we'd probably have a, a healthier nation but uh, we'd probably be out of a job but um <laughs> great <laughs> yeah. i don't great I, I i bet you're the same if there's a day where they go oh physios and chiros don't need you anymore Brilliant. Yeah. I'll go yeah, find something exactly. else to do. I'll go find we'll something start else. podcasting, but there's nothing, nothing to podcast about because everyone's all, <laughs> everyone we find. I, so yeah. I'm sure we could find something to talk about. I'm sure we could. We talk about your cat for another hour. And then... Oh, the cat with the dementia. Yeah, exactly. He's got, what's your cat's name? Arthur. Arthur. Oh, amazing. He's got, he's got diabetes and dementia. So we're talking about, talking about healthy lifestyles and I've got a cat with a dementia diabetes and dementia oh god oh poor poor cat right i won't take up any more of your your valuable time so thank you so much jack for joining us on on the back pain podcast that was a really fascinating episode hope there's lots of takeaways for people to listen to um and i'm sure we will get you back very soon for a part three um on arthritis or arthritic conditions and maybe we'll touch on rheumatism next time so thank you very much all right no worries thanks for joining us and have a great day mate yeah and you rob